Thanks for listening. With more than four years of weekly discussions for product managers and leaders, we have covered a lot of topics. For the rest of July 2019, I'm bringing back some of the early episodes that I believe are most important for your work and success. A lot of listeners haven't heard these yet, but they are so valuable. I'm also using this time to reformulate the podcast to make it even more valuable for you. More on that later. Now, to the intro. Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, developers, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, who gives you innovation training your customers will love you for. Get ready to take your career to the next level, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host and the founder of Product Innovation Educators, online training for product managers, so you will create products customers love. Hosting this podcast is such a treat because I get to talk with experienced and brilliant innovators and product managers. And today is extra special as I'm talking with the creator of an entire category of product innovation, one that significantly changed how I think about the process of innovation. Clayton Christensen said his approach is bring discipline and predictability to the often random process of innovation. Okay, did he catch that? Predictability to the random process of innovation. The category of innovation is known as ODI, Outcome Driven Innovation, and it was created by my guest, Tony Alwick. When ODI was published in the Harvard Business Review, they declared it one of the ideas that will profoundly affect business as we forge ahead in today's complex times. Tony also authored the best-selling book, What Customers Want, explaining how the jobs-to-be-done framework is transformed into practice with ODI. And you'll hear us talk about that, you know, how developing a product in terms of the job the customer is trying to accomplish. Tony is in his office in San Francisco for the interview, and you'll occasionally hear a truck go by in the background, but I found it wasn't very distracting. To get the notes for this discussion, please go to www.theeverydayinnovator.com slash 045. Also, we had a short talk after the interview about design thinking, and I added that to the very end of this episode. So keep listening if you want to hear that. Hi, Tony. Thanks for talking with me and the Everyday Innovators today about your work. Chad, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to catch up with you. It's been a long time. So obviously, we're talking about your work, which is outcome-driven innovation. What experiences led you to creating ODI? Well, that dates back to my uh, early career back at IBM. I was there from uh, 1981 to 1991. So I could see the rise and fall of the, the PC from an IBM perspective, at least. Mm-hmm. And I worked on a product called the PC Junior. Um, it was uh, IBM's entrance into the home computer market. And uh, I spent a, a year and a half working on it prior to its announcement. I was a manufacturing engineer. We're all extraordinarily excited about uh, releasing it. And the day after the product was introduced, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, the PC Junior is a flop. And I thought, well, that's pretty amazing that first off, they could, you know, do the assessment that quickly and reach that conclusion that fast. And the second fear that I had was, are they right? Uh, turns out they were right. Hmm. Um, PC Junior was a flop. It took about uh, a year for IBM to recognize that before they pulled it from the market, um, cost them over a billion dollars. And, um, it was a flop. Uh, but the thing that really occurred to me at that point was, People were using some set of metrics to define uh, what a good product should have been or could have been. And obviously, we didn't use that set of metrics to build the product. But uh, the, the thought was, if we could only figure out well in advance what metrics are people going to use to measure the value of our product, then we could just create the product to address those metrics. And you know, the headlines would read, PC Junior is the greatest thing since sliced bread. So that was really the start. That was the the start of thinking about what outcome-driven innovation should be. Um, but we spent the last twenty-five years trying to figure out how do you make that happen. Uh, what are those metrics, and how do you capture them, and how do you use them to create customer value and ensure that you do it in a way that's low risk? It, it's kind of a surprising story, but also refreshing because a lot of our people that are involved in developing products, a lot of innovators. Um, this is our key issue, right? We're, 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 when we lose sleep, it's about are we developing products customers actually aren't going to want. And so many of us have experienced to one scale or another, hopefully not the billion-dollar scale of the, the PC Junior. Um, 
And I suspect it's kind of funny as you've seen this evolve that, um, I, you know, I was buying PCs back at that time and I was really looking forward to the PC Junior coming out. And I was one of the customers that passed, right? Because I was like, yeah, this isn't really what I was hoping it would be. Um, and today when you're telling the story, I'm sure there's lots of people that have no clue what the PC Junior was, right? You have to kind of give that background a little bit. Yeah, uh, that makes me feel a bit old, but you're. <laughs> I, I'm right with you, Tony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the way you know. One of my hats these days is university professor, and I have to caution myself some of the time that the examples I'm using, my students weren't even alive when some of those examples were going on. So. Yeah, well, I'm still happy IBM's still around, so that most people at least recognize the company name. Absolutely, um, and that's is our fundamental problem: is how, how do we know that we're going to be developing products that actually our consumers value when we release them? And trying to figure that out early before we spend lots of money on the development is important, which is really kind of the central part of ODI. So let's talk about the key components. What what really makes outcome driven innovation work? Well, it gets at um, those metrics that people use to measure value and success when, when getting a job done. As it turns out. You know, when we talk about you know, what pe- what metrics were people using to measure the value of PC Junior, uh, you know, that took us down a path of discovery. And um, as you start thinking about those metrics and thinking about it in that format too, you know, I was a manufacturing engineer, so this was heavy in the time of Six Sigma thinking and all that fun stuff and statistical process control. So we were trying to measure everything at that point. We thought, you know, I thought it'd be great if we could figure out how to measure what customers want in essence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the real key to ODI is, is figuring out how do you measure what customers want? And, you know, it, it, it went down a uh, path of discovery. Uh, I wasn't a researcher by, by training, but, uh, you know, I got myself involved in talking with customers back in the eighties while I was still at IBM and figuring out how they express what they want. And fell into all the same typical traps that everyone falls into. You know, they talk about different solutions for products and things like that. It became pretty clear to me early on that this was not going to be easy. <laughs> and maybe there's a, a different angle to look at. So as I started putting together some of these metrics, uh, it occurred to me that the metrics that people talk about aren't really metrics on the product, but they're metrics on the underlying reason or job that they're using the product. So that was one of the first conclusions. Um, this came you know, back in the 1990 timeframe, 91 timeframe, that um, if we could study that underlying process, if you will, that people are using the product for, we could figure out what those metrics are, measure them, control them, and make sure we're creating products that get the job done better. So that was that was the key thing. What makes this work is to figure out what is a you know, what does a customer need? What are those metrics? And that has evolved over time as well. Um, it's easy to say, you know, even back in the IBM timeframe, yeah, there's a set of metrics people use to measure success and value. What are those metrics? Well, uh, it turns out that um, there's three types of metrics that people use when they're thinking about the way they measure value. Uh, first off, there's a set of metrics they use to define uh, success in actually getting the core job done that they're trying to get done. So if they're trying to whiten their teeth, for example, you know, minimizing the likelihood that uh, it causes gum damage while you're um, whitening your teeth and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and it all equates to actually the job of whitening your teeth. Uh, but there's other metrics they use, too. They use a set of financial metrics to define uh, success. And those might be something like you know, minimizing the cost of the, uh, of, of the product or minimize the cost of the procedure or minimize the cost of disposing of the product, or minimize uh, labor costs in order to implement the product, uh, a variety of you know, cost-related outcomes. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a third piece as well, which is more along the lines of what we call the consumption chain jobs. You know, People have to receive the product and install it and set it up and uh, interface with it, maintain it, store it, transport it, dispose of it, upgrade it. Um, so people aren't buying the product to do those things, but they have to do those things too. And they often uh, talk about metrics that make those jobs easier. So it's always nice to think about these metrics as metrics that relate to the core functional job the customer's trying to get done, uh, the financial metrics they use as a buyer when they're thinking through the buying decision, and these consumption chain metrics that they that come up when they're using the product throughout its life cycle. Now, of course, it took us... Uh, a good number of years to 
figure all that out and categorize it that way. But today, that's how we think about it. That's really the most efficient way to to uh, think about need gathering and organizing them. And that's really the starting point for ODI, is agreeing on what a need is and be able to go capture them. And having a framework like that, you know, really does simplify our understanding of how do we go about approaching, you know, this problem in the first place? Because everyone developing products has this issue, you know, what do customers really want? And I'm sure you, uh, you know, at some point chase lots of different metrics that could be considered and putting them into this framework really makes it easiest for, easier for our hands to get around them. You know, how, how do we define success? What are the financial implications? Um, both on the customer side and maybe the developer side. And then what are those convenience issues involved in using the product? Um, for example, I, I know recently I went through the tooth whitening thing and I can understand why the little, uh, you know, clip on strips or the paste stuff is easier than the, the big mouth guard like thing that you have to fill full of, of goo, you know, so convenience comes into the end of the play of the process here. Um, exactly. when you talk about the actually getting specific needs, I know when I read, um, read your book that there's a very specific language that you use to kind of describe a need. Can you, can you talk about how that language evolved? Sure. And this is what we spent the last couple of decades on is to, is to define the perfect need statement. That's the way I like thinking about it. You know, these customer need statements, I think everyone agrees that you know, um, innovation is all about coming up with solutions that address unmet customer needs. But uh, in most companies, there's, there's not agreement as to what a customer need even is. Mm-hmm. And of course, if there's not agreement as to what a need is, it's going to be hard to agree on what the needs are, and which of those are unmet, and then what solutions you should be building in order to address those unmet needs. So this all really starts with getting this definition right. So when we think about um, people uh, getting a job done uh, and they're using metrics to define success, then the question becomes, how do you structure those metrics? You know, what's the, what characteristics should they possess? Uh, what structure should they have? What syntax should we use? Because uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create an input into an equation that uh, that input is built in words. You know, it's not numbers. It's words from customers that define how they measure value. So we're trying to create a statement that, uh, in our vernacular, uh, meets a number of, of really key characteristics. First off, it has to be a measure of customer value. That's the whole point, right? If it's not a, a, a metric that def- defines how a customer is measuring value, then it's the wrong statement. So that's one of the key characteristics. Uh, second, uh, it has to be measurable and controllable in the design of the product. In other words, the company who's creating the product that's going to address this need has to be able to control it. Otherwise, um, it's uh, it's not a useful metric. Right? It's not something they could actually control when they're creating the product, so it becomes useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other key things is, and I've heard this for years, is that uh, you know customer need uh, needs change quickly over time. Um, they're ever changing, and uh, it occurred to me back, even back in the IBM days. You know, if we had those metrics, you know, a week before uh, we launched PC Junior, would that have helped us? Well, not really. It's too late, right? We needed that about a year and a half before. And what that suggests is that these need statements have to be very stable over a period of time so that when you get the product out the door, there's still valid needs. So um, the, the concept of these desired outcome statements meets these and lots of other characteristics. Uh, they are stable over time. The metrics of value, the measurable, controllable design of a product. And um, they start with the term minimize usually as well. Um, and uh, we've, we've done so much experimentation on this over the years. And what's, what's really happened is uh, back in the early 2000s, we did about 40 different projects with uh, Microsoft. We worked with their corporate market research group and they were very intrigued with the statements and all that sort of thing but we wanted to run experiments uh, on different variations of statements so Mm -hmm. every time we put a survey in the field we would put another survey in the field that closely matched it but we had some variables that we were testing we would test uh, the way we would start the statements minimize versus decrease or reduce or eliminate or prevent they all sound similar, uh, but what we found is that if we use different words to explain the same outcome, 
we get different importance and satisfaction ratings from customers. Hmm. So, um, of course, we can't have that because we don't want to be creating a, a need statement that, in, that the statement itself is going to be introducing variability into the process. Because, of course, once we know what the needs are, we want to figure out well, which ones are unmet. Well, the only way to do that is to go to customers and ask them, you know, which of these needs are really important and not well satisfied? And we, so we do that numerically through you know, statistically valid research. So uh, having the input uh, very consistent, uh, we learned, and using uh, similar types of words and being consistent from statement to statement uh, had a big impact on how those statements were rated for importance and satisfaction. So from that, we created a set of rules that we follow when we're uh, creating a robust set of statements. And we did publish some of those in an MIT Sloan article a number of years back called Giving Customers a Fair Hearing. Mm-hmm. So it gives um, you know, the listener some sense of what we uh, were thinking about. But we've continued to evolve them since then. And um, they, uh, in our view, are the, the perfect customer need statement. So that's really the starting point of all this. And getting that right is the key to everything that follows from a process standpoint. And for the everyday innovators listening, I will try to provide a link to, to that article on giving customers a fair hearing. And so you talked about formulating this, you know, the, the perfect need statement and having it be something that is actually measurable that we can, can address. But then you talked about ranking these two. So obviously we're coming up with more needs than we are probably actionable. And some needs have higher payoff than others. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that ranking process? Sure, absolutely. So uh, a couple of interesting things, uh, and you mentioned them uh, already. You know, some needs are more important than others. And uh, in addition to that, uh, some people are willing to pay more for certain needs than others uh, if they were satisfied as well. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, a lot to be discovered here. So the thought is uh, we need to gain agreement in companies as to what a need is. They need to know what the needs are. They need a complete set. And then they need to figure out which of those are unmet. So um, once we agree that an outcome, a desired outcome statement is a need, we can go capture them and can capture a complete set. Uh, a complete set is often between 50 and 150 different desired outcome statements. So it's not like five or 10 needs. There's often you know, over 100. And um, that's nothing to be afraid of. That's just the way it is. And what we try to do is to cast a very wide net and capture all these need statements because we don't know which ones are unmet, right? And we don't, and you can't manufacture an unmet need, right? It's either an unmet need or it's not. So uh, if you only captured 20 needs, then maybe only two of those are going to be unmet. Mm-hmm. If you can capture all 150 unmet needs, uh, maybe you'll discover 30 needs that are unmet. And those are your opportunities for growth. So we don't want to leave any stone unturned. So we do quantitative research once we have this list of 100 plus outcome statements and we ask customers to rate them for importance. So when you're whitening your teeth, for example, how important is it that you minimize the time it takes to apply the, uh, the material to your teeth? Um, How important is that? And then when you're doing that, how satisfied are you with your ability to minimize the time it takes to apply the material to your teeth? Uh, and so you get these two numbers, you know, the importance rating, the satisfaction rating. And of course, they're thinking about the solution that they're using when uh, they're rating that satisfaction point. And we ask them about the solution that they're using. So we know if it's you know, a crest white strip or a competing product or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So what that allows us to do in the end is to figure out um, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of each individual product and the opportunities that exist across all products. So we can figure out you know, if we were, if we were doing this work for uh, the Crest team and we could point out to them exactly where their customers think their weaknesses might be. But if we were doing this for a competing team, we can point out you know, uh, where Crest's weaknesses are and how they might want to beat them, for example. And um, for all teams, they can figure out you know what, what opportunities exist that no competitors are currently addressing. And that's often you know, where you go to really you know, win in the marketplace by not just leapfrogging your competitors, but, or not just catching up, but leapfrogging them in that fashion. Yeah, that kind of blue ocean aspect of their 
uh, features and benefits that no one's addressed before. And if you can be the one that captures that need and provides that value, then you have a clear advantage in the marketplace. And Chad, there's, there are two other uh, areas that we've evolved over the past uh, five or six years or so that have really become critical components in the OEI process. Uh, one is the the segmentation concept. Um, what we've discovered is that not all customers agree on which needs are unmet. Hmm. This probably isn't too surprising. Uh, and that's because uh, what we've discovered is that people, uh, some people encounter uh, more complexity factors when they're trying to get a job done. So in the tooth whitening example, you know, if some, someone maybe has a smaller mouth than someone else, maybe it's harder to fit things in and harder to position things. So, you know, that variable adds complexity to the process. Or maybe their teeth are a little shorter. Uh, maybe that adds complexity to the process. But what we've discovered is that in every market, there are certain factors that add complexity to the process, making it harder to get the job done. So uh, what we do when we do the quantitative work is we not only ask about the importance and satisfaction of the outcomes, but we ask about all these various complexity factors to figure out uh, if any of those pertain to that person in their situation. And then when we get the, quantif- uh, the quantified data back, we can segment around the unmet needs. We literally use the unmet needs as the basis for segmentation. And we can put people into different segments based on those unmet needs and then figure out what's causing those most underserved segments to be underserved. And uh, that insight has really been extraordinarily helpful uh, in helping to use ODI to create, formulate market strategies. Because if we can figure out exactly why a certain group of people are struggling more so than others, uh, we can do something about it. And I can give you a quick example of this as well. Sure. Uh, we did some work with um, uh, an automotive company, and uh, they wanted to look at all the jobs that people were trying to get done while driving. And uh, one of the, the jobs that we discovered is that um, people are trying to reach their destinations on time. And you know, this is true of business people, especially uh, get up in the morning, have to get to work. Uh, what we discovered from a segmentation standpoint is that while all of us have to reach our destinations in, on time, some of us go to the same location each day, uh, leave at the same time. Uh, we know the traffic patterns. We know the backup routes. We know where to park. Um, and we really don't struggle much to reach our destinations on time. So we're, we're a satisfied segment of customers. Um, on the other extreme, you have a group of people that have to go to different parts of a town or a city during the day. They leave at different times. They don't know the traffic patterns. Um, they don't know the backup routes. They're not sure where to park when they get there. They don't know how long it's going to take to walk to their final destination from the parking garage or parking spot. And as a result of all these added complexity factors, they really struggle to reach their destination on time. Now, when you're entering a market like that with a product, uh, of course, knowing that there are a group of people that are highly underserved for some reason is very helpful because they become, as using traditional terms, they become your early adopters. Mm-hmm. They're early adopters because they're struggling more than anyone else to get the job done. and They're looking for solutions that will help them get the job done better. They're often willing to pay more to get the job done better as well. And uh, this leads us to the second uh, breakthrough that we've had in the OEI process over the last few years. And this is uh, this willingness to pay component. Uh, we were often asked by clients to uh, answer the following question. All right. So if we, if we come back to them and say, these are the 10 unmet needs that we've discovered in this market, in this segment, often they'll say, well, will people pay more to satisfy those needs? Right. And uh, so we wanted to come up with an answer for that question. So we've created a, uh, a willingness to pay uh, process where we ask people about their willingness to pay to get a job done perfectly. And, of course, you then have to say, well, what does perfectly mean? Well, perfectly means it satisfies all your unmet needs. And when we're surveying them, we know what all their unmet needs are. So we can ask them specifically about those unmet needs and you know how much more they'd be willing to pay if they could get those needs satisfied better. Uh, what we've discovered is that in most of these highly underserved segments, people are willing to pay more. Now, um, just put this in practical value. We see companies do this all the time, like Nest, for example, with their thermostat. You know, they came out with a product that costs seven times more than 
all of the thermostats. I mean, they were $250. Well, the average thermostat at the time was $35. Mm-hmm. And you have to ask the question, you know, how many people are crazy enough to spend seven times more for a thermostat? Uh, well, the answer is about 10% of the market. But by controlling that 10% of the market that's highly underserved, they're controlling about 30 or 35% of the profit share in that space, uh, which is brilliant. And of course, this is what Apple has done with you know, 20% market share controlling 90% profit share. That's incredible. Uh, but you see this in many industries. Uh, Whole Foods does this. Uh, American Express does this. So it's a common strategy, but it only works if there are a segment of people that are highly underserved and willing to pay more to get the job done better. And uh, ODI has been extremely uh, successful in recent years because we have these added capabilities of figuring out the answers to those key questions. Yeah, clearly that's a big benefit for product developers of if you can recognize the underserved market segment that would actually value from the product by having the benefits added to it um, and be willing to pay more, uh, then you can increase the your profit as a provider. And also just identifying those different market segments so you can effectively message to them, right? Because the the one message that you might use for the commuter that is just going back and forth every day doing the same routine is going to be very different than the person who really needs help along the way going to new destinations all the time. Um, we want to get those marketing messages right. Um, I, I do want to back up just a moment to talk about, you know, first off, listeners might be kind of surprised how quantitative this is because I think a lot of people doing consumer research are very much accustomed to thinking of it as a qualitative analysis um, and certainly aspects of that. But ODI uh, really makes it possible to quantify so many of the outcomes to the point that you're getting to a metric at the end that tells you how much uh, customer satisfaction should increase by implementing these, you know, the top unmet needs. Is that right? That's correct. And the big question we're answering is how much, how much more are you getting the job done better? That's really the key. And uh, what we've discovered is that most products get the job done maybe no better or maybe just a little better, maybe 1% better, 2% better. Uh, but what we've discovered is that people aren't willing to switch uh, from their you know, favorite brands uh, for the benefit of getting a job done 1% or 2% better, usually. Yeah, it's not, not enough differentiation for them. Exactly. So you know, what's the break point? Well, we've discovered that threshold is somewhere in that 20% range. Hmm. Um, and if you can get the job done 20% better or more, then people are willing to take a look at your product. So by quantifying this in this fashion, uh, we know all the outcomes. We know all the unmet needs. We've quantified them. We can figure out uh, with new product ideas, how much better will they get the job done? And if those products will get the job done 20% better or more, then we say, you know, this is a good product concept and it's worthy of putting into product development. And if it's not, then you probably shouldn't because it could end up like the PC Junior. Right. And this was really an aha moment for me when I, I first read your book and then became acquainted with the work that you do, was this notion that, you know, long before we were actually physically developing a product, whether that's software or hardware, you know, we, something we can touch or see or a service, we can come to to very rational conclusions on how much certain features we put in relate to benefits to customers' value, relate to value, and how that impacts the pricing, uh, our pricing model, um, and quantify that. And I went, wow, there's actually levers that we can control, that we can uh, work with once I identify the right metrics, to tell us some real concrete information we need to drive the development process then. Um, that was an important aha moment that I never saw anywhere else before I, I got acquainted with your work. And so I, I appreciate that contribution and no wonder why Harvard Business Review and others have said it's uh, such a, a landmark contribution. Um, let me back up to the need statements real quick. And um, how, are, how are we generating those? So you talked about you know, there's a specific language involved um, and, and components of a need statement. But is this uh, interviews with our potential market segments? Is it ethnographic research? What are the technique, techniques that are to actually get the information? Well, they're all discussions with customers, you know, the, the users of the product. And um, the method, whether it's ethnographic or one-on-one phone interviews or a Skype interview or uh, face-to-face or observation, however you want to define it, they're all, they're all used. They're, they're all effective methods. We use 
whatever uh, is appropriate for a given situation. Um, but interestingly, you know, it's from our view, it's almost as easy uh, to get a, uh, a good set of needs just from one-on-one phone interviews as it is from um, you know being there. Mm-hmm. And now people find it hard to believe, but uh, the reason it works is because people are very familiar with the job that they're trying to execute. We talk to people in the medical space frequently. That's about a third of our business. And uh, surgeons know exactly, you know, step by step what they are trying to do when they go through a surgical procedure. They do it in their sleep. They've done it thousands of times. And talking to them about the job they're trying to get done uh, is very second nature to them. So uh, whether we're having a conversation outside the OR, in the OR, over the phone, on Skype, uh, call, um, we can extract really insightful information if you if you know what kind of information you're looking for. Right. Of course, uh, our goals aren't to discuss the product. They're to discuss this underlying job that they're trying to get done and how they measure success. Um, when we do this chat, what makes it easier for us is to create first what we call the job map. Well, the very first thing actually is we need to make sure we define the job correctly. Uh, and uh, this is the starting point. This sounds like this would be trivial, but it's certainly not. Uh, you can define a job too broadly. You can define it too narrowly. Uh, in the surgical space, it's pretty straightforward because you know, they're trying to perform, like maybe you know, repair a rotator cuff, for example. Pretty straightforward. And so uh, there's a beginning, there's an end. It's easy to see. But in other cases, it's not so easy. Uh, we've worked with clients in the agriculture space, for example, who make herbicides and pesticides and they're pretty convinced that people are buying the products to kill weeds. But when we went to their customers, we discovered that their customers aren't trying to kill weeds at all. They're trying to grow crops. Right. And it's that kind of, uh, uh, of twist that is often very enlightening for a company as well. Think about it from, from a different perspective, because now they have different opportunities that they can pursue in order to help their customers get the job done better. So, Getting the job defined correctly is critical, and we always let the customer define the job, not the company. Uh, then the next step is to create what we call the job map. Just lay out all the steps that customers are trying to get done. This is often intriguing. Uh, this is different than a proce- uh, process map or a customer journey map in that we're not laying out what the customer is doing. We're, we're defining what the customer is trying to do. Two different things. You know, what they're doing could be highly inefficient, iterative in nature. Um, but we're trying to figure out what they're trying to do. Uh, one of our philosophies is, you know, if a process is iterative, uh, there's room for innovation because, uh, it, what makes it iterative is the first time through the process, uh, they don't have the inputs they need to exit that process step, uh, with the right output. So they have to go further downstream in the process. And once they eventually get that input, then they have to come back and iterate. But the, the innovation would be if you can find a way to get that needed input earlier in the process, you could avoid that iteration and that iteration and become much more effective uh, in terms of getting that job done. So we consider all these factors when we're laying out the job map and it becomes very helpful. Uh, sometimes we can create uh, very innovative cons- concepts just by looking at the job map. And think through, you know, how could you get this done in this order? How could you get that input up front? And um, that can be game-changing itself. Uh, we, had, we had published an article in H- HBR back in 2008 called The Customer-Centered Innovation Map that goes into a good amount of detail on that subject. And I will also try to find that one. And uh, if it's available publicly, which I imagine it is, add it to the show notes also. This is probably a good time to talk about a, a concrete example, a case study of where you used ODI. Um, and I, I often am talking to people involved in product development about this process, and I like to share some favorites that I know from your past experiences. Um, but what is an example that you can share with us to help us illustrate uh, this process? Chad, how about if I give you a couple? How about if I do the um, a hardware-related one, okay. uh, like the circular saw, and then a, a marketing-related one? Uh, like Arm and Hammer's Animal Nutrition Group. I can do that quickly. Okay, so uh, let's do the, the Bosch example first. Uh, we were asked by Bosch to help them uh, enter the North American uh, circular saw market back in the early 2000s. And, of course, circular saw has been around for quite some time, uh, hard to differentiate. 
um, Akita DeWalt were leading the, the pack at that time. And um, we used the approach to discover a segment of customers that had unmet needs. Now, the interesting part of this story is when we looked at the entire market of circular saw users and we asked them to rate the importance and satisfaction of all the outcomes and we looked at that, um, there were no unmet needs. And what we had to do is to use our outcome-based segmentation technique to figure out is there even a segment of customers that have unmet needs. And it turns out that uh, there was. Um, these um, circular saw users often had to perform more um, finish cuts. Hmm. So they would have to change the angle of the blade more frequently. They would have to change the height of the blade more frequently. So these added complexity factors made it harder for them to get the job done. And as a result, they had some they had 14 unmet needs that existed in that segment. And that segment was roughly a quarter of the market. So um, what we instructed Bosch to do was to uh, come up with a solution that addressed each of those 14 unmet needs, which they did, and embedded them all in their CS20 circular saw product, uh, which became uh, their best-selling circular saw product in North America almost 10 years ago now, and it still is today. So uh, that's the reason I like that example is because it shows the precision that's necessary in order to find opportunities in a commodity-type market. Mm -hmm. And it shows that ODI offers that type of precision to find those kind of opportunities in a market like that, which we think is critically important. And what a big impact on the success of that product. Um, And this happens to be one of the examples I love to share with uh, with others and uh, like to just dive into one, and you, you can correct me if I get this wrong, but one of those specific things so I love this example because it's a, it is a commodity product and how do you add more value and maybe in the same process actually reduce the complexity of the device and, you know, decrease manufacturing cost. And one of the things that, that I believe you found was that contractors who use these have a tendency to occasionally cut through the cord of the saw, which really, you know, puts, creates a lot of downtime for them to have it to get the saw fixed. Um, and the outcome was to actually remove the cord and just make it easy to plug in an extension cord into the saw, making it more valuable as a device, uh, create that benefit for the contractor, and also reducing some complexity in creating it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there were three specific outcomes that that solution addressed. Um, so uh, one outcome was that they wanted to minimize the cost of repairs when, um, when cutting through the cord. Mm-hmm. That's not an infrequent uh, happening. Um, second, they wanted to be able to uh, lower their uh, the, the circular saws uh, to the ground from a ladder. Interesting. And uh, they're using the cord to do that. Hmm. So uh, that's an interesting factor. And uh, they also wanted to minimize the downtime of the saw uh, when they uh, had this cut cord because now someone's out of work, right? right. Or just you know, idle for a while. So um, by taking the cord uh, off the circular saw and allowing people to plug a uh, extension cord directly into the saw, they call it the, their direct connect, and they patented this. They were first to market this. Uh, as you said, it had dual benefit. It not only helped them get the job done better, but it helped them get the job done cheaper as well. And those are always the you know, that's the winning combination for any product. Yeah, you exactly. Can, if you can help customers get the job done better and cheaper, uh, you are going to be successful. And the reason you're going to be successful is because you're going to satisfy all the underserved segments and you're going to satisfy all the overserved segments. So in essence, by getting the job done better and cheaper, you're satisfying the entire market. Excellent. And the other example you had? The other example relates to uh, work that we do with Arm & Hammer's Animal Nutrition Group. And most companies are unaware that Arm & Hammer's even in that space, but they are. And um, the company, uh, the division itself was uh, struggling a bit to uh, to grow, and uh, they asked us for some help. Uh, what we did is we applied our approach, and the very first step that we looked at is defining the job, of course. Now, this is a, a classic because they're the animal nutrition group, and they were advertising, uh, along with all their competitors, about uh, you know the health of the cow and the nutrition of the cow, but what we discovered is that uh, dairy men um, weren't so interested in that. That message that message really wasn't resonating as much because the job isn't about uh, the health of the cow. The job was about optimizing dairy herd production, 
And once they discovered that that's how the variant thinks about the job, we laid out the job map and so on, and they could see how they could contribute much better to getting that entire job done. So they had many of the components and products and services in place to do that. Uh, they just had um, you know, the wrong messaging. Um, and they broke out of the pack by changing their messaging to not focus on uh, nutrition, but focus on dairy herd productivity. And so by doing that, and we trained the, uh, the sales team uh, with the new messaging, we talked about uh, a specific segment that we discovered that they could uh, focus on that uh, was uh, struggling more than others to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And uh, with all that information, they were able to increase their sales quite dramatically year to year. So from 2013 to 2014, uh, they had a revenue gain of over 30%. Uh, and the, now the reason I love this story is because they did it without changing their products or without changing their pricing. It was all through a marketing sales effort by focusing the same set of products on the actual job that the customer is trying to get done. And uh, that was very powerful for them. It's a great example of how you can just reposition an existing product to better serve a, a, a market or maybe find a new market for that product. Um, and I like that you know, in this example, it started with reframing the problem, right? Identifying the job that actually needed to be done, not the job that the company thought that their customer needed to accomplish. And how we frame those problems in the beginning, you know, that really sets the path that we go down. So I appreciate you putting that focus on the beginning and how do you, how do you define the job in the customer's terms and then explore how they're trying to solve that job now? Exactly. So thank you for sharing that example. Um, and for product developers, it's not always about developing a new product. It's sometimes about looking for how can we better leverage what we've already done uh, in a way that's better aligned with the customer's need. Well, as listeners know, uh, I always like to uh, wrap up with an innovation quote. And what is an innovation quote that you love and why did you bring it? Uh, yes, there is one I like. Um, it's Steve Jobs. And um, the quote is, You've got to start with the customer experience and work backwards to the technology. You cannot start with the technology and try to figure out where you're going to sell it. Now, I like this for a couple of reasons. One, it really gets at uh, dispelling a couple of myths about Steve Jobs. A lot of people think that Steve Jobs said, you know, we don't do customer research. That's not true. They worked really hard to understand the customer experience and you know, work backwards from there to create the technology, like he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think people don't understand is what is that customer experience? And from our view, of course, it's about getting that entire job done. So if, if you can understand what that job is and all the uh, steps people go through and how they measure success and value as they go through that customer experience, you can create you know, a product and service that will generate a tremendous amount of value. And I like the quote because this is the essence of outcome-driven innovation. Uh, This is how I've thought about this for years. It resonates perfectly. I can't imagine doing it any other way, although, of course, (laughs) it happens the other way around quite frequently in the industry where we start with the technology and hope there's a market for it. But uh, as we know, that's that's a pretty inefficient approach. And I think eventually, uh, it might be decades from now, but um, I'm pretty sure eventually companies will only use the you know, the customer experience first approach and then work backwards to the technology because, you know, they can't afford to uh, be heading down all these um, wrong paths and pivoting and failing fast and, you know, maybe never getting it right. It's just um, very inefficient to try to solve the innovation equation by uh, coming up with solutions and hoping they address unmet needs. It's just so much easier to discover the unmet needs. You know, exactly like Bosch did, you know, here's the 14 unmet needs. How do we solve them? You know, if you spend a lot of time defining the problem, then uh, defining the solution becomes quite simple. Yeah, it reminds me of an Einstein quote, too, that, um, and I'll paraphrase this badly, but something to the effect that, you know, if he was given a problem to solve and he only had an hour, he would spend the first 15, 55 minutes understanding the actual problem uh, deeply, and then he would be able to solve it in five minutes. And it's understanding the problem, and in this case, the job that the customer is trying to accomplish. Um, leads to our success in providing value for them. So, and I also appreciate sharing that quote because probably more people I suspect are familiar with the quotes that Steve Jobs said, you know, something to the effect that, um, you can't ask customers what they want. Um, and 
when you look at his body of work, he really was uh, very much about having to be close to the customer experience and that if you're developing products for your customer, you better understand their needs better than they probably understand themselves. Well, it's a great point uh, because, you know, he did say you can't ask customers what they want. Uh, and that's true. Um, you don't ask customers what solutions they want. He knew that because customers don't know what solutions they want. You know, they're not the technologists or the scientists or the materials experts. Um, they don't know what's possible. So how can they come up with a solution? Mm-hmm. You know, I think about innovation as the process of coming up with solutions that address unmet needs. Um, when you go to customers, you're supposed to be understanding their needs, not the solution. You know, the exactly. solutions, the job of the company. Uh, but as Steve Jobs said, you know, you can understand that customer experience extraordinarily well. So I think what he was saying is, you know, you can't ask customers what solutions they want, but you can certainly go understand the customer experience that they're trying to achieve and create technology that addresses it. And that quote conveys that well. Thank you for sharing that too. And for people that really want to dive into more, obviously, um, I'll make it easy in the show notes for people to find your book. But how do people find out about more about outcome-driven innovation and the work that your group is doing? Well, I think uh, a visit to the website always helps. We're at www.strategen.com. There's access there to lots of white, uh, white papers and case studies and links to the book and things like that. So that's certainly a good resource. And uh, we're just going to Amazon for you know what customers want. Um, is a, a great source. And I think those are the key things. And if you want to go to the HBR site, uh, there are the articles that we mentioned there as well. They carry the MIT Sloan articles on the HBR site as well, too. So you can just type in the author's name, Ulwick, and uh, see what pops up and start looking around. Very good. And I'll make it easy to put all find all those links by putting them in the show notes. And that will be at the everydayinnovator.com slash 045. Tony, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you've developed a very important body of work and have put it to good use. And I'm sure you are rapidly, you and your team's rapidly evolving this and learning every day about how to even uh, do a better job adding value to customers and solving the problem and, and the job they need done with products. Thanks so much for sharing the highlights of that with us. And again, for listeners, please dive into Tony's book. Uh, uh, it's a really useful resource. Tony, thank you for your time. Chad, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Everyday Innovators, I so appreciate you listening. Help others on your product team by telling them about this podcast. You can also make it easier for others to find this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving a quick star rating. Of course, five stars is the best. To find the show notes for this and all the details of the discussion, go to the everydayinnovator.com slash 045. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to product innovation training your customers will love you for. To learn more, please check out the blog at theeverydayinnovator.com. Keep innovating. Lately, I've gotten so much involved with design thinking and the lean startup and running lean as a, as Ash Mariah's book on that. And, um, and I'm just curious how, you know, how, how do these pieces fit together in your ODI perspective? Right. Um, and design, like I've always still a lot of these processes and I might, this might be my misinterpretation of ODI, right? But there seems to be this magic sauce in a lot of processes, which is, okay, ODI does an excellent job of laying out what are those unmet needs? Which ones do we need to focus on? And then there's this magic that somehow happens about, um, how do we actually satisfy those at a product, right? What, what does it mean that we keep cutting the cord on the Bosch circular saw? And um, what, what's the right solution for that instead, right? And something like design thinking has, you know, the processes built in for doing prototypes, getting feedback on those prototypes, you know, and figuring out what the right solution might be. How, how does that fit in with ODI? Yeah, it fits in quite nicely. I mean, there are, they're, they're different. Um, and so we think about innovate, the innovation process as separate from the development process. So the innovation process ends when you decide this is the concept that we're going to put into development. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what happens currently is that the pro- the products that are going into development aren't really well thought out. Right. Right. And, and so design thinking picks up there. You take this product that came in, not too well defined. And now you got to go try to figure out all the details that, that you need to, in order to make the product a success. 
Now, we think that's highly inefficient because all that work should have happened in the innovation process. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the most agile development process is one where you don't have to change the product that you put in there. Right. You, you know what you're starting with. You know what you're starting with and you're not changing it. Um, what a lot of companies do and what design thinking does is it assumes that nobody will ever figure out how to get the right product into development to begin with. And you're going to have to iterate and prototype and test and retest and iterate. As I mentioned earlier, you know, in any process where you're doing lots of iteration, you, you iterate because you don't have the input you need the first time through in order to get the answer. So you have to keep coming back and do it again. Now with ODI, I mentioned the three kinds of metrics that we capture mm-hmm. functional job, the consumption job, and the financial, those consumption job metrics are all the metrics that the designers want. That's what they're looking for because you know, they have to create the function, but they also have to make it so it's easy to install and set up and maintain and upgrade and support and so on. So they're looking for those kind of inputs from customers. Uh, ODI provides all that upfront so that you have a complete package of, of need statements going into development so that you're not guessing once you get into development. So uh, we believe in the design thinking concept but we take it to the next level and say, why wait until development in order to start thinking this through? You need to do that in the innovation process. And that's what outcome-driven innovation does. And, so, and it's really down to providing much clearer inputs for the design for the designers to really know um, what they need to accomplish with the product. Exactly. And, but, and again, designers don't like to be told so much how to get it done, but they want to have an understanding of what they need to design to. Exactly. Well, that's why we like the metrics. You know, the metrics are free from solutions, our outcomes. So when we hand those off to engineers, they're free to discover different ways to address the unmet needs. And when it comes to product design, uh, the actual design part, um, they need that flexibility. They, and they also need the flexibility uh, to make the right trade-off decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't know all the unmet outcomes, they can easily make a mistake in making the wrong trade-off decision because they're not sure what they're trading off. But by informing the development team with all those inputs, so they know the, the core functional metrics to get the core job done, the functional metrics to get the consumption chain job done, and the financial metrics, they can make the right trade-off decisions. Right, yeah, they know what constraints they're working with. Um, and like the next example, the, the thermostat you gave uh, points that out well, right? How much of a, a constraint is the cost you know, versus other trade-offs the consumer is making? Um, exactly. And that frees up designers to, to have new flexibility that they didn't know would exist without having those metrics in place. Exactly. Very good. Okay. I appreciate, uh, just wanted to talk about that a little bit and see how it fit in too. All right. That's uh, feel free to use it. <laughs> uh, I shall then. So Tony, again, thanks for your time today. 